why might one want to become a part of the church when so many Christians are real jerks sometimes? Uh, how how can um, is Christianity just all about do's and don'ts and Byzantine archaic rules? Um, how how can we trust the the character of God to be good as Christians claim He is when there's so much evil in the world? Um, these are the kinds of questions that people ask when they're questioning Christianity. Uh, on today's episode of The Apologetics. Hi, this is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. Um, as per usual, let me know in the live chat with a thumbs up or something if you can see and hear well. Um, uh, by way of reminder, The Apologetics is part of the Trinity Commission. Uh, the Trinity Commission is a network of podcasts and YouTube shows that are in one way, shape, or form associated with Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I'm an adjunct professor of Bible and theology. In fact, I'm I'm repping my Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary merch, um, although the label is too far down my shirt, so it doesn't quite show up on the screen right, But uh, but now you know that it's there. If you are somebody that is looking for a higher education, a Christian higher education in theology or apologetics or philosophy, and you don't have the time or the money to be able to afford a traditional brick-and-mortar type institution, um, then why not go to trinitysem.edu, that's Trinity S-E-M for seminary, trinitysem.edu, and you'll get to learn from um, professors including people that host those shows on the Trinity Commission network of podcasts, including Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett, whom you'll uh, recognize from Trinity Radio and Trinity Extra, um, as well as Leighton Flowers of Soteriology 101, Steve Gregg of The Narrow Path, um, Tim Stratton of uh, Free Thinking Ministries, and more. Um, so check out Trinity Seminary. I'm a really big believer in what they're doing, and I'm really honored to be a part of it. Also, uh, please do like this video when it's over. Click the like button if you enjoyed what you watched, if you found it helpful. Uh, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already and click that notifications bell. All three of those things, each of those things, is uh, really beneficial to the YouTube algorithms that will determine when and in what contexts um, my videos are recommended at the ends of other people's uh, ch uh, videos and things like that. So I'd appreciate your support in those ways. Um, I guess, oh, one other thing I'll just mention before we dive into to, or before I explain what's going to happen today, um, if you are interested in the hell debate, but not the typical debate um, between believers in eternal torment and either conditional immortality or universalism, but rather the debate that I think is the debate of the future, the, the debate between conditional immortality and universalism, um, then why not tune into Cameron Bertuzzi's Capturing Christianity this coming Thursday, uh, July 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific. 
Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. I will be having an informal, um, you know, conversational style debate with Universalist Keith Giles on Cameron's show, and I think it's going to be really uh, a really great conversation, something that will help a lot. And as I said, I think that's the debate of the future. But that's not the topic of this uh, episode, so let me tell you what's going to happen today. I, um, several months ago, began to become friends with somebody named Dan Patterson, an apologist who, among other things, has been involved with um, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries before some of the fallout that happened there. Um, And he recently started a ministry called Questioning Christianity and recently published a book with a co-author by the same title. And I invited Dan on my show to discuss his book um, and to uh, uh, talk about, to to get to know him a little bit. So um, he, and he was gracious enough to accept my invitation. So I'm going to go ahead and bring him now, bring him in now. Uh, Dan, thank you so very much for joining me. It's it's a real pleasure to have you on and I appreciate you taking time out of your day to, uh, to, to appear on my show with me. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I'm really honored and always been uh, just a huge fan of the warm-hearted way in which you've wanted to have big conversations around framing God and the gospel right. So honored to be on your show. That's far kinder than I deserve. Uh, I'd like to start um, my interviews, or at least most of them, by asking my guests about their faith background, their testimony. Uh, Viewers will know that I came to faith late in life, well, relatively. I was 20, 21 years old, having not really had any um, exposure to Christian things prior to that point. Um, What about you? Were you a believer from a young age, or raised in a Christian household, or is it something you came to faith uh, later in life, or some combination thereof? Tell us about that. Yeah, I think like a lot of people's story, mine has some complexities to it. So I was raised with Christian folks. Mum and dad uh, took us to church and taught us a bit about Jesus. Uh, they had a very practical faith. They loved people, worked with youth drop-in shelters, people that are drug addicted, uh, much more than a cerebral or one that they talked about openly. Um, and so I kind of grew up knowing something about God and something about Jesus, but not really knowing what to do with it, what to make of it. Uh, and I think the where the rubber really hit the road for me was when I was nine, we went on a big family holiday and had a car accident where my mum was badly brain damaged from headbutting a truck at high speed. Man. And that sort of torpedoed my childlike belief in God because it just didn't seem to fit the idea that a loving and powerful God would let something like that happen. If he could have stopped it, why didn't he? Uh, And so most of my late childhood, teenage years of watching mum wrestle with this new struggle and overcoming and relearning how to do so many things and uh, was just more apathyism, like many Aussies, (laughs) because life is pretty good here on the sun-kissed shores. It's just not really giving the God question much of a thought. And so I lived my my teenage years kind of that, most of the secular fellas at the high school with me, uh, playing music, playing games, having grand fun on weekends, and that's that's about it. And it wasn't until I left school and started asking questions around what do I want to do with my life uh, that I started to reconsider, uh, man, how do I answer life's deepest questions? What seems to make the most sense of who we are and why we're here? What should I be aiming for and who I'm becoming and what makes for the good life? And it was in the midst of asking some of those questions that a friend of mine said, well, I think you should maybe explore whether or not God has any answers to these kinds of questions. Mm. And so he said, read the Bible. Uh, And I didn't know when Christians say read the Bible, usually they mean read a part of (laughs) the Bible, like maybe one of the Gospels or something like that. So I just picked it up and having not been to church in nearly a decade, I just read from kind of cover to cover and was really confused by the vast majority of what I was reading. It didn't make a ton of sense to me. But when I got to the Gospels about Jesus, so many of the questions that I had there just were eclipsed 
by the response that he is for heaven's answer to the deepest heart cries that we have. And so I remember getting to the end of John's gospel where it says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. And I just had this strange feeling of like, I, I think I believe this <laughs> now. Uh, I think I'm, I'm a Christian, so maybe I should start going back to church. And so uh, right around my 18th birthday, I remember getting up telling most of my mates, look, I, I've started believing in God and following Jesus. And they're like, all right, that's weird, but <laughs> we'll, we'll let you do that. Uh, and my desire to make sense of the Christian story then and how it answers life deepest questions just started there and had a wonderful first church experience where my youth pastor, now a dear friend and mentor, um, in whose shadow I feel like I'm always just trying to learn more from, uh, he just encouraged me, hey, ask your questions. Let me help you learn how to read the Bible. Don't feel like you have to check your brain at the door, but try and make sense of stuff. He gave me a book list of things to read and uh, just, yeah, kind of started the blossoming of uh, love of God with my heart and my mind from there. Yeah, beautiful. Um, what about your interest specifically in Christian apologetics? Because that's something that you have been, it seems, heavily involved with uh, for several years now. I mentioned your time with RZIM. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but also, you know, your founding Questioning Christianity, which we'll also talk about. Where, where did your interest in apologetics begin? Did it have something to do with that sort of crisis of faith that you experienced when you were younger? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, one of the key questions that I went to this new youth pastor with was, uh, help me understand why a good God allows suffering. And I didn't know this was what's called apologetics, this sub-discipline in Christian theology of wrestling with and commending the Christian faith as good and true news. But for me, it was just, I'm trying to make sense of this for myself. It, it didn't fit. And so uh, the way that he helped unpack that from the Christian story, I found really helpful. And then other kind of questions that I'd encounter, just trying to say, what does the Christian story say to this? And I'd be more of a theological apologist in that sense. Uh, I resonate a lot more with rather than jumping hugely outside into areas that aren't my specialties of philosophy or of science or of history, but instead saying, what is it the Christian story and a good thinking through how God has revealed himself across time? How does that feed into the various questions that we kind of ask? And so it was just me trying to make sense of things and then realizing, hey, if I had these barriers to being able to believe in or to embrace and trust God, I wonder if other people do as well. And so I just started doing some youth talks at the local school or in youth group or running young adults teaching groups and sermons at church and it just kind of again grew pretty naturally I spent seven years as a youth and young adults pastor and when you're hanging out with 15 to 30 year olds just you can't talk about God and about Jesus without them saying but what about or my <laughs> right. friend asked me uh, it's just natural and so for me I never said I want to do apologetics or become an apologist I just wanted to help people make sense of why God and the gospel is good news to them and part of that is addressing these big questions uh, according to the Christian story. Yeah, very good. Um, one of the things, one of the places you were involved with prior to your time at RZM and Questioning Christianity was, I, I, I might be mispronouncing this, Malon Theological College in Qu Queensland, yeah. is that right? Um, yeah. So tell us about what, what, what you were involved with there and, and how you got involved. And also for any view of our viewers um, or even listeners of the podcast after the, after the episode is uploaded that are anywhere near Queensland and might be looking for the kind of education that Malon uh, provides, why might why might they want to consider Malon over some of the al other alternatives that are available there? Yeah, totally. I mean, we're going to have all kinds of hilarious pronunciation <laughs> between the US and Australia. After all, we live officially in the future and you guys are in the past. We're just waiting for your English skills to catch That's up. That's right. But uh, <laughs> no, but um, all of the Baptist 
seminaries here in Australia have renamed after the print, the first principal. And so Mallion, um, T.M. Mallion was the first principal of the, the Baptist seminary here in Brisbane. And that was where my alma mater, I did my undergrad degree there and, uh, and had a, a bit of a season of just doing some sessional lecturing. I've just dived back into that last night. So just doing a few subjects, um, being able to do some teaching at the seminary as uh, sort of just a, a sessional lecturer. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful seminary. It's uh, full of a good, diverse faculty that come from different backgrounds and strengths. And so they've got a good distance program. If you're looking to do online study within the uh, sort of Australian stream of accreditation, would definitely recommend that you, you check that out. Uh, more of my areas have been stepping into subjects like Christian worldview, Christian apologetics, uh, Christian evangelism, principles of evangelism. Uh, and so that's more my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um, now tell us, after uh, Malion, or I mean, like you said, you just got started getting back into that. Uh, but, but some number of years ago, you, uh, at least for a while, I think, uh, left Malion for your involvement with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and um, obviously that's a bit of a, a touchy subject right now, given some some of the fallout. But your involvement with them, I think, ended shortly before really stuff started hitting the fan. So, um, I mean, can, can you talk about how you got involved with RZIM and and what you yeah. what you were doing with them? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really painful thing to talk about in the sense that my experience of the ministry and the opportunities that you have to do meaningful gospel work was wonderful for so many years. So uh, partway through my pastoral stint at Ashgrove Baptist, uh, I went and spent a year studying over in Oxford at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics and attached with Wycliffe Hall there, the Anglican kind of college as part of the university. And just a wonderful year of studying under John Lennox and Oz Guinness and Alistair McGrath and Amy or Ewing and a whole lot of key people that would come in and just do some fantastic lecture content. And, and that was sort of connected with RZIM, their European branch. They delivered a lot of the tutorial content uh, and so at the end of that year, I was invited to join the team over and move to the US. Um, but originally I was still on you know, a teaching break from uh, from my uh, role at the church. And so I said, no, I'm, I'm gonna go back. I wasn't finished in those roles. It didn't feel right as a shepherd to step out unprepared in that way. Uh, and they came back to me maybe 12 months later and said, well, would you consider opening something in Australia and launching our, our sort of Australian arm? And, uh, and so that's kind of what I did from 2015 through to sort of March of 2020. Uh, just helping to pioneer the ministry over here in the sort of Pacific region. Uh, and they were wonderful years of doing evangelism, of partnering with churches, of Christian networks, of campus ministries that are doing stuff on universities, of working in schools and just going and helping people address the big questions of what is the Christian story and why can you believe it, the what and why of the gospel. Uh, and so I had just really fruitful time. I, I loved the mentors that we had as kind of part of that that ministry, being able to look up to some of the giants in the faith. And, uh, and, and as you said it's just so sad now um how all of that has, has sort of played out and, and is now a dark shadow over so many people's histories when there was a lot of good and meaningful gospel work that was done and i hope will continue in the aftermath of the evil revelations that have come out yeah i hope so too um you you said something that really surprised me a moment ago. You said R Z I M. Don't you Aussies also say Z, kind of <laughs> like our British brothers and sisters? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, there's words that I, I should be careful, but my my accent is all over the place. In <laughs> fact, because um, I realized very quickly, speaking in Asia, I was part of the Asia Pacific team within um, RZIM, and uh, they do not understand Aussies very well because our our pronunciation is lazy. We drop the um, 
uh, consonants off the end of words all the time. And so I found myself overpronouncing words as I'm speaking in Asia and actually usually overpronouncing them with an American accent. So often now when I speak in Australia, people will come up to me at the end and say, where are you from? I can't <laughs> find, pick your accent. I'm like, I am 100% Aussie. But, uh, but sometimes, yep, I, I give in. I, I apologize. <laughs> I just recently learned from a friend who lives in Australia that you guys often abbreviate afternoon Arvo. Is that right? Yes, that <laughs> is correct. Yeah, we, we mostly drop off the endings on most of our words. So we have our entire dictionary language that needs to be learned for anyone that's moving over here. I'm definitely going to get my hands on that dictionary if I do find myself coming and, over there and, for its spell. And just... Just as a real warning to those who come from uh, the U.S. particularly for us, uh, we use the word thongs. When we say thongs, that is pluggers, right? The things that you put on your feet. So if you hear an Australian t telling a story talking about thongs, please do not get the wrong idea of what's being said. They're talking about pluggers or sandals that we wear on our feet. I think we That's typically the call them... the most dangerous one that you need to, need to be careful with. I think we typically call them flip-flops, although, although flip -flops. even I've called them thongs a number of times. So I don't think it's as okay. Okay. dangerous as you think. Think it might be well, that's good i remember i mean, telling a story back in 2016 when i was in the u.s and uh, just seeing some mortified looks on people's faces <laughs> and i i knew i'd stepped or done some faux pas but had to figure out what it was yeah talking about women wearing thongs on their feet or something must have sounded really weird to, <laughs> to certain people all right last question uh, in terms of getting to know you before we start talking about your book tell us about how you got the idea to found the, the ministry questioning christianity and and what it is that you hope uh to accomplish there for people yeah, well, I, uh, I shared a little bit before. I stepped down from RCIM in March of last year, right as the pandemic hit. I, in fact, I remember um, getting back from my last trip in Singapore and uh, and then lockdown hit and no one's going anywhere in Australia for a long time. And so questions in the aftermath of, all right, well, what's what's next? Uh, where does it really seem like the Lord is leading? And uh, what is meaningful uh, ministry? What do I feel trained for? What do I feel called to? Where are the real needs here on Aussie and New Zealand shores? And so we, uh, we were waiting, looking at pastoral roles, teaching roles, um, just sort of figuring out oh, where's the Lord leading. And then we had a number of our friends come and say, you, you've been really prepared and shaped for a specific need, which is to help people connect the Christian story to life's deepest questions. And so we think you're meant to launch something new in that area. And so I step back from that idea. I've got zero desires for leadership or governance responsibilities that comes with all kinds of red tape and weight, uh, but just wanted to do gospel ministry. But the more and more people kept uh, kind of knocking on the door and saying, we think this is what you're meant to do. We thought maybe this is from the Lord. And so took a season, paused, pray, met with friends and mentors, met with Christian lawyers to look at setting up a new not-for-profit. And, uh, and really the heartbeat for questioning Christianity was to create a bridge for people that don't believe in God and don't understand the Christian story. Uh, maybe a post Christian in attitude, as though we've moved beyond religion in our modern society, but yet are pre-Christian in their understanding. They haven't really known the, the message of the Christian story that they're rejecting. And so really wanted to help create a bridge by speaking to their questions, helping to highlight how the Christian story says, what does it mean to be human? Why is it good news that you have a purpose and meaning, a heavenly father who wants good for you? And uh, and really being able to unpack all of the Christian story's answers to life's deepest questions. Uh, and so that was kind of the heartbeat of questioning Christianity, to keep doing speaking in schools and universities and churches and conferences, but also then to launch a digital arm, given that most people, young people in particular, are really figuring out what they believe online, that rather than talking to their friends or family or even pastors or churches or religious communities, they're Google searching and mostly they're 
YouTubing. And so we wanted to help create digital content that really helps reach and, and respond to these sorts of big questions for them as well. And if I'm not mistaken, you're uh, a few videos into that YouTube channel. You haven't really made a big hullabaloo about it yet because you're trying to develop some content first. But um, uh, but maybe you could tell, talk briefly mention some of the topics that you've started to cover on your YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Totally. I, I, you know, we, uh, I think we're 12 or 13 videos in or something like that now. So uh, the first series that we've launched is just called our shorts, sort of five to eight minute length videos uh, looking at questions like, can I question God? And uh, why should I believe in God when I'm happy as I am? And why would a good God allow suffering? And will there be sin in heaven? And uh, all the way through to questions around judgment, questions around God's hiddenness, questions around hell, what happens to people from other religions. So just a whole lot of these broad questions that I find I get asked in Q&As all the time, just creating some meaningful content there. And then on our Instagram account, we're creating slides with sort of the headline takeaways for every single one of those videos. Hmm. So if you're in a conversation with someone, you can just jump on there and say, hey, here's a few thoughts that you can kind of use or just use it to break up and have good discussions with your friends. So really trying to help create some complimentary content uh, in different formats that uh, that makes it usable for people. If you really want to be on the cutting edge, you might have to start uh, uh, doing stuff on TikTok. Is that, is that on your radar at all? Yeah. Well, you know, I was thought about having some good conversations with Abraham Piper on there and seeing how that goes. Oh, so, wow. That would be interesting. Well, very cool. Um, it certainly seems to be the new frontier for really shorthand dialogue around religious content. And, and I think that ability to uh, kind of reduce big ideas down to tweetable tweets or quotable quotes, it's not always the richest format for meaningful conversation, but it certainly is the catchy one. And so you've always got to walk that line between what helps communicate Christian truth with a distinctly Christian tone. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what we're aiming at. Yeah, very good. All right, well, let's start talking about your book. I'm, an, I'm holding this up in front of the camera for folks. It's called Questioning Christianity, is there more to the story? And you've co-authored it with somebody that I'm guessing is named Ryan Rue. Uh, you might have to um, correct that. But, uh, but maybe... Yeah, so he's South African. So it's, it's uh, Rian. Rian Rue. Rue. But I did get the Rue right. Got the Rue. Well done. It's more French. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not Rooks or something like that. Um, no, very good. Okay, well, so uh, maybe talk about how, how, what... When did you have the idea to write questioning Christianity, and and um, what do you what do you hope that readers get out get out of it? Whom who is it for? You know, t tell us about that. Yeah, it's a great questions. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, so Rian actually approached me and said, "Look, I've got this idea. Both of us have been in ministry with young adults for quite a long time, and you always have people saying, hey, what book should I give to my friend? We either had a conversation about God, or I want to have better God conversations with them, and I just never really know what book to give them.' And, and so for us when we kept getting these requests it's like whoa well tim keller's reason for god does this c.s lewis's mere christianity does this the big picture from Vaughan roberts does this and there were all these different books that maybe told the christian story explained the gospel explained what it means to become a christian new believers guy with alex early uh or answered some key questions but we never felt like there was this one book that really brought all of that together and so the heartbeat behind the book is to help tell the Christian story and connect it to all the questions that secular people are asking. Who am I? Why am I here? How should I live? What's happening to me? What's wrong with the world? How do we fix it? And how is it that the six scenes of the Christian story do this? So, you know, before I said, you know, I read the whole Bible cover to cover and barely understood any of it. We've basically tried to summarize uh, the Bible in about 10,000 words for people. So break it up into six scenes on creation, on the fall, on Israel, on Christ, on the church, and then on the consummation of all things when he comes to set everything right uh, and help connect 
that with real world questions. So if you want a written version of the Bible project almost, but a little bit longer form, uh, that's kind of uh, what we've tried to do there. The second part of the book was really trying to help explain, you know, the, what it means to become a Christian and help parse that out because it's a big term that people use all the time. Yes, I'm a Christian. Apparently two thirds, uh, sorry, one third of the world is a Christian, some 2.38 billion people. Uh, and then the last part of the book is really helping to address people's questions, the room for doubt within a developing faith, and then how do we respond to these kinds of questions. And so the kind of audiences we had in mind were people who are brand new to the Christian story, but maybe have reservations towards God or religion. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're worried, they're weary, and, and, and very, very uh maybe concerned about uh, religion. And so we wanted to be able to help write something that's relatively subversive. And maybe what you've heard isn't actually representative of what Jesus taught. Uh, We wanted to think of people that are new Christians, people that still need to find their feet in what they believe and why. And and we were thinking of seasoned believers as well. People have been walking with God for a long time, but who want to be equipped with the right language and ability to respond to key questions when they're having God conversations. So it's it's a little bit of book nearly for anyone. Yeah, yeah. You you know, you you ran really quick through those six scenes that that sort of summarize the the biblical story, um, I actually think that that could be something of a helpful mnemonic for remembering the biblical story in a very in a brief way that you could deliver in a short, almost like an elevator speech kind of thing. Um, so maybe could, could you briefly uh, explain what each of those six scenes are and and how they collectively yeah. tell the Christian story? Yeah, I would love to. In fact, I do I do training using this framework for this very reason. So uh, we would talk about how, you know, our world, when you look around, it looks pretty broken. And we have this deep recognition that this isn't the way that things are meant to be and how the Christian story actually responds to that. Because the first scene, it makes sense of this intuition by saying that in the beginning, we were actually created for good by God and that human beings were made in God's image. And we were made for deeper, meaningful relationships to love God and love each other and to care for God's garden planet, a meaningful role as gardeners and governors of God's good world. We're designed to cultivate it, to make it beautiful, fruitful, and and that was our role. Uh, But kind of core to any kind of meaningful existence is the right of self-determinism. If we want to have a meaningful relationship, then we can't simply be programmed or robotic, but there is this necessity of having built into the system some kind of meaningful opportunity where we could say, no, uh, where we could reject or turn our back on the love of God. And this is the second scene then of the Christian story, which says that rather than loving God and trusting that his fatherly boundaries would lead to our flourishing, instead we broke faith with God, decided to define good and evil on our own terms, and so by doing became damaged by evil. And for each one of these scenes, we have a kind of a core image. And so created for good in the garden, but damaged by evil is kind of highlighted by the tower, where in Genesis chapter 11, having seen the fall of humanity and brother murder brother and men enslave women and tools of war becoming a trade, it kind of culminates with humanity trying to make a name for themselves and reach back into heaven on their own steam to building the Tower of Babel. Mm. And then uh, scene three then shifts to, all right, well, given how much human nature seems to be descending into, into madness, what is God's rescue plan? How is God going to rescue? Respond. And it begins with the nation of Israel, the nation being chosen to bless. And you've got God setting aside a barren couple to be the ones through whom their seed, uh, the Savior, will ultimately come. And then the entire story of Israel, of God helping sinful people draw near to a holy God by setting up the entire Torah, uh, all of the commands, the rituals, the way in which they can come near to him in worship. But there was always still a distance between God and his people because no one sinful can stand in the holy presence of God. 
But sadly, rather than being obedient towards the Torah because of the hardness of the human heart in response to sin, Israel just kept failing again and again. And the prophets ultimately began to whisper about the coming of one who would fulfill all that they were meant to be and fulfill all the promises that God had made to be able to deal with the evil in here as well as the evil out in the world. And so scene four then is ultimately God's answer to these longings. It's where Jesus comes to redeem us through love. And in this story, it's the invisible God becoming visible. It's the hidden God being made obvious, where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And you start to see in the life of Jesus the coming of the kingdom of God, what the world would look like if people loved God and loved each other, and and how the future world is going to be when all of the symptoms of evil in this world and suffering begin to be wiped away. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he deals with not only the record of our evil, but also through his resurrection, he actually offers us new life that the the heart of the human problem is actually a problem with the human heart and the only way to to be saved to be able to spend eternity in god's presence is to be changed from the inside out and so through his death and resurrection talks about how that is the cure to the human condition but then also how in scene five of the church being sent to heal uh, jesus commissions the church to follow in his legacy to do what he said was his mission statement in luke chapter four to bring good news to the poor to set freedom the captives to be able to restore the sight of the blind to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the lord's favor of the goodness of god drawing near to bring freedom and restoration and resurrection and and so the, the church is meant to model the love of god and also to spread this christian story of what god has done through jesus to be able to reconcile a lost world to himself with the promise that one day in scene six jesus is going to come to restore everything and set everything right and so this picture of him restoring justice which we all long for but doing it through judgment which we shy away from and why it is that uh, we start talking about eternal realities of of judgment of the role of of hell and the wages of sin and death and then also the promise of god and resurrection and eternal life for those who have put their faith and trust in jesus so we kind of parse out the story under those six banners of created for good damaged by evil chosen to bless um, redeemed by love sent to heal and then set everything right and though like you said that could be used as a way to kind of share the big picture of the christian story that people can find their place in it even easier than those short phrases are the six words or scenes themselves oh your camera turned off by the way uh, are, are those short scenes themselves so uh, just make sure i remember them correctly garden yeah uh tower nation cross church and city right yeah yeah they're really helpful images to kind of anchor all of that content so uh yeah even if you just use that we we often use the pictures in the talks that i give in schools and other places to be able to kind of use them as anchors yeah um now i began blogging and podcasting a little over a decade ago and the thing that motivated me to do so more than anything else was that it seemed to me as if many christians um they have their hope their their final hope set ultimately on going to heaven when they die as if they're to remain forever as a disembodied soul floating on clouds or whatever um and i think this is the caricature that many non uh, many people within the non-christian world uh, are familiar with and think that we christians believe in. Um, So you can imagine then how thrilled I was that that's not how you conclude this Christian story that you tell in six parts in part one of your book. Indeed, I don't think you mentioned at all what happens immediately after death, even though you you also don't say nothing happens, right? That that might be my view. But but anyway, (laughs) instead, you focus on what the Bible, uh, what the Bible focuses on, which is uh, as far as the ultimate hope and final destination of believers. So what is that if it's not going to heaven when they die? 
Yeah, and this is, I, I think, part of the joy of what I do speaking with a lot of secular audiences in schools and universities is you get to take these popular myths and just break them apart and say, this is not what the Bible actually teaches. And so when it comes to what is God's end game, the picture is not of a disembodied existence, but it's of a resurrected earthly existence. It's of a restored world of God coming to make everything kind of new. And so the hope for Christians is not disembodied in some kind of other dimension. It is a resurrection to real physical but immortal immortal life and so eternal life is living with god forever in new bodies that can no longer get sick or die in the ones that we now do and so i love the kind of christian hope it doesn't throw away the that matter actually matters <laughs> yeah it doesn't say that what we do in this life doesn't matter because actually if god's end game in the christian story is that we're meant to be governors and gardeners with jesus ruling alongside him in god's new creation well that actually brings validity to all of our life and what we do now we're learning what it means to become good stewards and carers of God's creation and of the communities around us to participate in loving God, loving others and caring for the planet. And so I love that embodied vision and that human beings are meant to be psychosomatic wholes, uh, the mind and the body united, not disembodied, immaterial spirits off in the ether. That's actually an unnatural state known as death. Yeah. Even if there is a conscious intermediate state between death and resurrection for believers, as you say, it's an unnatural one. It's not how we're ultimately supposed to be. And, and, and I was so, yeah, and so yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, and I, mean, I love in the book of Revelation where you've got, you know, the spirits of people who have been uh, beheaded for their testimony about Jesus calling out before the throne of God, how long, O Lord, until you restore justice on the earth? So here they are, the, the so supposedly disembodied people who are actually saying to Jesus, when? When are you going to return to be able to restore justice, to bring about the resurrection so that we can live in the world that you intend us to? And so the idea of just being in God's presence, there's still a longing for the kind of existence that he wants, where rather than us leaving earth to go to heaven, actually heaven comes down to earth. And there's a great cosmic marriage between heaven and earth and the new creation. So I, I, I love that picture. Yeah, me too. Amen. Well, um, so we've we've covered part one in brief, part one of your book, in which you tell the Christian story in these six parts. Uh, let's turn now to part two, in which you issue an invitation to readers to join or become a part of this Christian story. And in part two, um, each of your five chapters in part two discusses something new that people walk in, that they become a part of once they accept that invitation. Um, and, and those new things are pithy and bite-sized and easily memorized in the same way that the first six are. So walk us through those five new things that, is, that, that, that Christians participate in as part of the Christian story. Yeah, appreciate that. And uh, I mean, I, I have no desire to um, McDonald's uh, <laughs> the Bible or Christianity or make it make it bite-sized or, or pithy, but sometimes it's just helpful to find your feet to say, well, what really does change? And we try to wrestle with these sorts of, and uh, what are the big differences for people? And, uh, and so the personal invitation is everyone lives according to a story. Everyone answers life's deepest questions somehow, whether consciously or unconsciously, and then lives out the script according to that story. And the invitation of Jesus is to believe in and follow him, to accept his interpretation of the world as revealed across the, the breadth of the Bible. And as a result, there's a bunch of things that are new. Jesus invites us into a new relationship with God, where we can be born again into God's family as a son or a daughter of the living God. And, and as a result, a relationship with God is much like a relationship with all kinds of other 
sentient, moral, uh, intelligent beings where you spend time, you learn what the other person is like and uh, you change yourself in many ways to be able to fit them into your world. You prioritize others in loving relationships. And so we talk about what it means to come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and how to grow in that. There's some real practical kind of hints at the end of every chapter. Uh, the second reality is the idea of a new community or a new family in the church. Uh, and this is one of God's greatest gifts, as messy as the church can be at times. And as much as people carry a lot of heartaches from bad church experiences, man, I think more people have been put off God by the church than by anything else. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the church can also be beautiful. Uh, like the kind of Christian relationships that I have with, with people around the world and in my own local church, they are enriching and life-giving and challenging. And so we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of what it means to have a family, a community in, in the church and, and how to be able to find a meaningful, healthy church that uh, that isn't as tainted <laughs> by unjust structures or bad leaders as, as some other ones can be. Um, and the third thing that we talk about in there is kind of a new identity. And this is a fraught term in our modern world, so we don't even like the yeah. category. I, I kind of that it's just more about saying where do we derive our meaning and our value and our highest understanding of ourselves and for us it's about de-elevating every other label that we adopt whether because of our work or our status or our fame or our wealth or, or you know our preferences or our, our actual physical labels of the clothes and stuff that we buy but just de-elevating that importance in being able to determine who we are and, and to be able to then say what does our creator say about us that we're made in his image that sets our value. The painter himself, the artist, is the one that really determines the value of the painting. And then also what was willing to be paid for us that determines our value. And the, so the creator at the beginning and then the cross of Jesus Christ, where God was willing to pour out his life through his son Jesus to be able to buy us back, to redeem us, to purchase us back. And so we just wanted to help people come to, to grapple with the idea of you are who God says you are. And that his voice should be the one that means the most to us Amen. in terms of what uh, where we fit and understand ourselves in the world. And so why I think that's really good news. Uh, the fourth one really looks at a new way to live because the reality is when you start to follow Jesus, he actually does give commands. Mm -hmm. And everyone thinks, you know, Jesus is really light and easy. He just wants us to be kind and loving. But actually, Jesus said that discipleship is about obeying him. And in Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission, you know, um, the old authority in heaven has been, on earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, yes, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Yeah. And Jesus gives some 50 commands across the four Gospels, some of which we're very familiar with. Things like you know, when, when others revile you, instead bless. When they persecute you, pray for them. Uh, when they hit you with the right hand, turn your other cheek. All of these kinds of commands. We're familiar with some of them, but others are quite confronting as well. And so that idea of, okay, how do we follow Jesus as our moral compass? He is the greatest moral exemplar on what it means to love God and love others. And I want him to set the course on how I live my life. And then the last one is a new purpose. And this is, I think, just so life-giving for people who have grown up in an age where everything is uncertain. There are no fixed, there are no givens, there are no borders, there are no boundaries. Everything's fluid. And they're saying, okay, well, well what do I do? Who am I meant to be? What am I meant to do in the world? Why on earth am I here? And I just love that the Christian story gives two big purposes in creation, uh, that kind of work to partner with God in the ordering of his universe, bringing beauty uh, and framing beauty and order from chaos and using our gifts to cultivate his planet and to do good to the human community. And then also in redemption because of the fall now in going and making disciples. So I love the cultural mandate and this great commission and that they're overly, uh, ultimately overshadowed by God's desire 
character that we love God and love others with all of our being. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully that would just be a really helpful section. People to say, what does it mean for me to actually be a Christian? Not just to adopt a label, go to church, but actually to follow Jesus. We try and pass that out helpfully in that section. Yeah. And like you said, uh, you, you do offer those helpful uh, tips for getting started, suggested resources in each one of those chapters that, that are great. Um, let, let's dig in briefly to chapter two of this part, specifically the, the new community, because um, I remember very, very early on in my faith, we're talking 18, roughly 19 years ago, um, I began listening regularly to Hank Hanegraaff, the, the so-called Bible answer man who succeeded uh, Walter yeah. Martin, I think it was. And I remember him very frequently saying something. In fact, he said it so frequently, I can hear it in my ear right now as I think about it. He would always say, uh, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. And that's really the message of the second part, or at least it's a main message in the second chapter of the second part of your book. But here's the thing, as, as I'm sure you can uh, understand, it can often be a very hard message for many unbelievers who have extremely negative experiences, even painful experiences, uh, caused by, inflicted by uh, Christians within the church. So in this, in this chapter, how do you encourage seekers to accept the invitation to be a part of this new community that is the church, despite the fact that they may very well have experienced a great deal of pain at the church's hands? Absolutely. And I, I hear the weight of that question. Uh, I know a lot of people who have been turned off the church, friends that were in ministry who have been burnt out, uh, people who have been falsely accused or have done so much wrong, many people who have been abused. I mean, in Australia, we actually had a royal commission, a government-sponsored investigation, almost like a truth and reconciliation commission sort of thing, to investigate the depths of uh, sexual abuse within different institutions in the church really took center stage in there. And so we're painfully aware of the tens of thousands of stories of people that this represents. And so I, I don't at all want to, want to say this glibly. Um, I think one of the things as I read through the Christian story that I appreciate is it is not silent on religious evils. Mm. It doesn't pretend that they don't exist. It doesn't try and sweep them under the rug. In fact, God always drags them out into the open and exposes them. Uh, I remember watching that uh, film um, Spotlight that looked at the investigative team from the Boston Globe that uncovered the first real extent of the sexual abuse and cover-up within the Catholic Diocese over in Boston. Mm. Uh, and when they broke that, the church was saying they're doing the work of Satan. Actually, no. These reporters were doing the work of God, Amen. the same thing that he did through the prophets, the same thing he sometimes did through secular nations like Babylon in calling the sin of his own people to account and dragging it out into the open. And so I, I think one of the things that God promises is that he will deal with evil, and he is absolutely against religious hypocrisy in the church. You will find no greater opponent of religious hypocrisy than Jesus, who called religious leaders in his own day whitewashed tombs, renovated to look good on the outside, a public social image, but on the inside they are a moral and spiritual corpse. And he warns them that any of you who have caused the least of these young ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and to be cast into the ocean than to face me at the judgment. Yeah. And so I, I find tremendous encouragement that God does not sweep this away and nor will he say it will not be dealt with, but that he will deal with it ultimately. And so even those who feel like justice has not been done and that people have got away with something, at the judgment, all things will be called to account. Uh, and so there's, there's, there's some hope there. Yeah. But I also think that the Christian story says that if anything, Christians behaving badly or a bad church is only more evidence of the fact of the human condition, yeah. that all people are touched by evil yeah. and that all people need to be changed by Jesus. And the problem in the cases where people have been hurt at the hand of Christians is not that these people were being Christian. It's that they weren't being Christian enough. 
because there is no way you can draw a straight line from the teaching and life and example of Jesus of Nazareth to the dark deeds in the church and that have been perpetrated by Christians across the ages. And so my encouragement to someone who might be watching this and thinking, I can't ever consider the church because of what was done to me. I, I hear you. I absolutely hear you. And I'm hurt to hear that uh, that you've been put off Jesus or God because of this. But at the same time, I know all kinds of churches of people who genuinely do love Jesus and they stumble and they fall, but they are rich communities of love and of sacrifice and of grace. And if God's end game is that we would become beings that are are like him, people that have been softened and have to learn compassion and to bear other people's burdens and take responsibility beyond ourselves, then we're actually meant to be embedded in deep and meaningful relationships. And that's the kind of picture that he has for the church. Some people will build you up. Other people will frustrate you. And actually both of those things are necessary for our development. Um, And so I think there is also like a a still a rich reason to be involved with the church, but also to, to make sure. And that's why we try and lay out the what does it look like to, to search for a healthy church? Because unfortunately, there are a whole lot of very unhealthy ones. And, uh, you know, the U.S. has its fair share of them, I think. Yeah. I, I'm glad you said uh, one of the things more than any other that you said there had to do with uh, um, the, the opportunity the, the opportunity to, to grow and mature as a relational person be, by being a part of a community with other broken people. Because one of the things that I think... I have really benefited from being a part of this community um, is my ability to have deep, meaningful relationships where we are vulnerable with each other, where we sometimes hurt each other and we learn to forgive each other and show each other mercy. Um, and, and oftentimes outside of the church, those kinds of deep relationships where we, where we stretch and grow each other in those ways, precisely because of the ways we're broken and hurt each other, uh, that kind of growth often can't happen outside of the the church there's just not the the mm-hmm. depth um and uh commitment of relationship that you have within the church and i mean do, do you find similarly that that the um it's it's often the most broken people within the church who help you to grow most spiritual you know to mature the most yeah. precisely because you learn how to extend mercy and and love and, and and recognize how broken you yourself are by seeing it in others i mean does that kind of stuff resonate with you 100 percent, 100 percent. i think uh uh, what I love about the church is those people who are more like Jesus put up a mirror to my brokenness, and those people who are less like Jesus put up a mirror to my brokenness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because uh, it, just, it just brings out frustration or selfishness and uh, just things that you're like, oh wow, uh, I need I need to deal with this within myself. And it's by practically committing to love other people, even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't want to, that that embodied self, those habits of the heart, that's the stuff that really begins to transform my character and weave into who I am. These deeper patterns of godliness. Amen. Very well said. Um, The other chapter I wanted to ask you a follow-up question on in this second part of your book is chapter the the fourth chapter, which is on a new way to live. Um, Unbelievers, I think, very often have this impression that Christianity is all about obeying archaic Byzantine rules of do's and don'ts that stifle individuality and freedom. Um, And in chapter four of your book, uh, this part of your book, you affirm that the Christian call is indeed to a new life of virtuous living, but you also correct some of those misconceptions that I just mentioned. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the key misconceptions is the idea that God accepts you or God loves you because of what you do. Mm. And that is just patently false. You know, the most important thing for anyone listening to this to realize is that when we're at our worst, 
God still loves us. And I love the picture, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. And so no matter what you've done, God loves. Uh, that love is not contingent on your moral capacity or your good religious works or anything like that. But rather, the difference is having been loved by God through Jesus, we're invited to realize actually God has a moral fabric to the world. There's a way that he's designed things, the same way that we obey the natural laws or that we, uh, we learn to harness them for human ingenuity, technology, development. So too does he want us to understand the moral laws that undergird human interaction what the Bible seems to call God's wisdom, the way of understanding the moral fabric that he's woven into creation. And that when we go with them, that actually leads to God's glory. It leads to our flourishing. It, it goes on average better for you. And it also does good to others. You become a life-giving person. And so when Jesus lays out these commands, as counterintuitive as many of them seem to our innate reactions, if someone punches you, you want to punch him back. They earned it, you know. Uh, as counterintuitive as many of Jesus' commands, you actually look at the end game. What kind of person would I become if I follow that? And the reality is you become the kind of person that you want to be, the kind of person that you would want to have around you as a friend or as a significant other. And uh, and so that ability to say, okay, when Jesus offers me commands, it's not because he wants to rule over me. It's because he wants what's good for me. And, and becoming a father to three young boys, just knowing so many of my own motivations when I give them uh, responsibility or when I say, hey, do this or don't do that. It's not because I'm trying to act as a moral straitjacket, keeping them from enjoying their life. It's actually I want to lead them into the path that is real, full, whole life. What Jesus said, I've come to give life and, and abundance. Yeah, I'm especially um, convinced that this way, this new way to live, as you call it in, in chapter four of this part of your book, um, is much a much freer way of living than the way of living I was accustomed to before I became a Christian and I think most people are accustomed to before they become a Christian because while it may seem as if there is a greater number of restrictions on what you might be welcome to choose to do or not do than than outside of Christian living on the other hand what I find is that you are free to um, you're no you're no longer you, you're increasingly um, free from the shackles of your of your instincts and your flesh and your addictions you know um, sure it may be wrong morally to say uh, lust after a woman that is not my wife and that may feel restrictive oh my god I'm not going to be able to go download hours worth of porn or something like that. But what it does is it allows me, I'm no longer, I'm, I'm less and less every day um, bound to those drives, forced by mm. or by that addiction to pornography and things like that, that, that would, that would um, drive me to consume those kinds of things and violate the covenant I have with my wife in those ways. And, and I'm more and more free to really give myself fully to my wife and enjoy uh, the, everything that is involved in the marital relationship. So, I mean, that's just one example of countless where it seems to me as if, like to use the word you used, counterintuitively, the, mm. the, this way of living actually is a freer way of living rather than a more restrictive one, even if it doesn't seem that way on the surface. Yeah, and uh, you know the great philosopher uh, Isaiah Berlin, uh, who taught at Oxford, a public intellectual in the, in the UK, uh, he spoke of two kinds of freedom, a negative freedom, which is the absence of any constraint, and then positive freedom, which is the embrace of the right constraints that lead to flourishing. Yeah. You know? And so, so much of our modern culture, we think freedom, the absence of any constraint, no one can tell me or show me or put boundaries or borders around what I should do. That's true freedom. But that's the same thing as a fish saying, no one can tell me that I should operate and live in water. And so I'm just <laughs> going to use my freedom to jump outside the water. It's like, well, look, you're free to do that. 
but that's not actually going to be the most life-giving thing for you. You were designed for the water. And when you live in that stream, when you embrace the right constraints of that environment, that actually leads to a greater freedom and use of your abilities than what you could experience flapping around breathless on the outside. Uh, Similarly, like a train, a train is designed for the tracks. It can hurtle off, absolutely go careering into the bushes and do all kinds of damage, but it is most itself and most free when it's cruising down those tracks for which it was designed. The question is, what were we made for? And if human beings are made for deep and meaningful relationships of the model that God has given to us and of a meaningful role of partnering with God in bringing life-giving work to the world, then I, I think the embrace of the right constraints, the commands of Jesus actually lead to human flourishing. Yep, very well said. Um, All right, well, let's turn now to the third and final part of your book. And here I'm not going to have you give us a summary of it all and then drill in. I'll I'll ask you sequentially. uh, (laughs) Thank you. We'll go through it sequentially, sure. Um, And in this third part of your book, you offer answers to seven big questions that cause many people, both within the church and outside of the church, to doubt the Christian story that in parts one and two of your book you've recounted in an invited readers to be a part of. Now, the first two of these seven questions are uh, questions that concern the character of God. So they're, what if the snake was right, question mark. Um, In other words, is it right to call into question God's character? And then secondly, how could a God, uh, how could a good God allow suffering, the likes of which we see so much in, in in this world? So what are some of the things that you encourage readers with when it comes to these very difficult questions? Yeah, it's a really good good question. And so, I mean, I, I would certainly uh, encourage people to look at more extended resources at the end of this on, on these sorts of topics. But the first one on what if the snake was right, uh, I was really tempted to address what I think is the base question that people have in almost any Q&A that I've, I've faced is either, is it true? Has science disproved God? Is there any evidence to believe in God? Can I really trust the Bible? Has it been altered or just written by goat herders in a bronze era? (laughs) Um, to, To try and think through, you know, is it true? That's one thing. It's more of an intellectual exercise. But the real question, the real barrier that people have that undergirds most of their questions is, is God really good? Can I can I trust him? Can I take him at his word? Can I give my life to him? And uh, and this is the kind of ground zero of doubt that Satan seeded in the biblical story. You've got this snake who suggests that you can't really take God at his word, that his motivations for telling you not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is just because he wants to hold something back from you. He's keeping you from experiencing the best kinds of things. And so this doubt maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he doesn't have my best intentions at heart. Maybe God can't be taken at his word. That really seems to feed into all the other questions around suffering and evil, around God's hiddenness, around judgment, about what's going to happen to people when they die and other religions, all of those things. The baseline question is, can I trust the character of God? And so what I wanted to do was just come at that at the beginning and say, well, if what if the, the flip side is true? What if you do have good reasons as your baseline to trust the goodness of God? Because that means whenever you come at any other derivative question from there that's the 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 kind of foundational reality from which you you reason you may not have complete answers to the problem of evil the problem of hiddenness but if you have good reasons to trust in the goodness of god then that is the thing from which you can reason to look for possible or plausible responses to these sorts of questions and so in that chapter we look at three different things really i guess an approach to the moral argument around the reality of goodness itself i think um of good and evil of these being meaningful categories uh i think is best explained by the existence of god 
um, we look at the idea that you know in a, a court case if you're going to put someone on trial that there should be a presumed innocence until you hear both sides of the case that nine times out of ten whenever we get into a misunderstanding with someone we wrongly interpret their intentions we <laughs> put intentions into them that they didn't have that's data that's driven by psychological investigation and so what if the same is true of God rather than come in thinking yes he's well, he can't be trusted because of the accusations or the questions or the doubts that are there. How about we come and try and be more neutral and say, well, is there a good response from the Christian story to the kind of questions that call his goodness into doubt? And if the defense stands up the Christian story and offers a meaningful response in that trial, well, then the, the reasons we had to distrust him in the first place seem to be kind of nullified. But the third and I think the most important way we came at that question was to look at, well, how has God made himself known? Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He's spoken of in Colossians 1.15, as being the image of the invisible God, or in Hebrews as being the exact representation of his glory. And so I think when you look at Jesus, when you look at the caliber of his life, morally speaking, his redemptive interactions with individuals, his own death and resurrection, I just think he, if that's what God is like, then you have a huge amount of confidence to be able to trust in the goodness of God. And so that was kind of addressing that question. Um, the suffering one that you brought up is one that everyone faces. And, and as I shared earlier on, that was my biggest barrier to belief in God. It was my reason for walking away from Christianity in the first place. And I guess what's happened for me on this question over time is I've gone from thinking that evil and suffering are a good reason to doubt God to thinking that evil and suffering are a great reason to run towards God. Uh, I, I've done a complete 180 in my thinking on this because not only do I think the Christian story best explains the world and the evil and the suffering and our innate reactions to it, the very fact that we see evil and suffering is wrong, that there's something wrong with the world that needs to be fixed, you know, the naturalist story should tell us what is, not what ought <laughs> to be. And so I think the Christian story that we we're created for good, that, that something's gone wrong in how we relate to God and to each other and to our environment, that uh, that being damaged by evil has really upset the goodness of God's design and our relationship to it. Uh, I think that's fundamental to explaining our deep intuition towards suffering and evil as being wrong or something that needs to be fixed. But I also think that the Christian story offers answers as to why a good and powerful God would allow a world that includes suffering. And there are various ways of coming out. If you look at a few in the book, I think one of the most prominent ones ever since sort of Elvin planting his infamous defense uh, is the free will defense. The idea that Genesis 1 to 3 spells out the idea that God created meaningful moral agents because he wanted to create people with deep and meaningful relationships and a meaningful role that partner with him in order from chaos, but that this entails that people be given significant moral freedom. And the problem of granting people significant moral freedom is that they can use it in ways that you don't approve of. <laughs> you know, the very re the reality that we have to say and pray that God's will be done on earth as in heaven means even though God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, stuff happens that he doesn't want to happen in a sense. Evil, suffering, abuse, rape, genocide, murder, oppression, injustice. These are not things that God looks on with delight as though his moral will is being done. These are things that go against his moral design. And so I, I think you know the free will defense goes a long way to undermining Epicurus' original argument, the, the human argument, the, the at least hard logical problem of evil. But ultimately, I don't think the Christian story gives us all of the answers as to why a good God allows suffering. Uh, I think the Job story cautions us that because we don't sit in God's place, because we don't look through the corridors of time, maybe we shouldn't expect to have all the answers yet. Uh, but what we do see in Jesus of Nazareth when he comes to make God known is God's response to our suffering. Yeah. And we see with Jesus at the graveside of Lazarus that he weeps 
alongside the grieving sisters Mary and Martha at the death of their brother. He's moved to tears. Deep compassion drives him. He gets angry at death. Twice it uses this term to speak of his anger towards death. Where have you laid him? And then he commands the, the death be overcome. He, he comes to confront death as an unnatural thing and to be able to offer a resurrection to, to anyone who believes. And this is what he says to Mary and to Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will live. And these believing ones will never truly die. Do you believe this? And so he offers this future hope that one day all the sadness and the suffering it doesn't win like in the secular story death is not the full stop at the sentence of reality for those who trust in Jesus but there is a promise of resurrection and eternal life for whosoever believes in him and so this future hope Paul says outweighs our light and momentary troubles this is the guy who's been stoned and beaten and imprisoned and smacked with rods and shipwrecked and hungry and homeless and he's like yep compared to the goodness of what's coming with God for all eternity. These are light and and momentary troubles that will pass when Jesus wipes away all those tears. And so that present with us to weep in our suffering, to offer a future hope and also a present meaning. You know, the Christian story says that if we're suffering now, that God can use that. It doesn't have to be meaningless. We shouldn't just try and escape suffering and pursue pleasure. But in fact, suffering itself, if it comes, can be used meaningfully by God, where he works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so even suffering, the New Testament sort of uses this image of a forge or a fire that refines who we are. It both reveals the impurities and helps melt us down so that we, in God's hands, can be impacted and to to be changed. Um, So that can be super helpful for us. You're, you're, uh, and then what your I, camera turned sorry. off again, by the way. <laughs> yeah, just, fix, just fixing that now. Sorry. <laughs> it's all right. Sorry. Um, and, and what I really love most about it, though, is the final picture of what we see in Jesus, where not only does he promise this kind of weeping his presence with us, a future hope, meaning and suffering, but he comes to suffer with us. And I love in John Stott, his famous book, The Cross of Christ, when he opens on the chapter on suffering, he said, I don't know if I could have believed in God were it not for the cross. Yeah. And this is where you see God not remaining distant in heaven's joys and untouched by the suffering of this world, but instead he comes near to experience it himself. And Jesus literally suffers excruciating agony on the cross, ex crucis from the cross. And just to think that that's the love of God that he's willing to suffer for me. I may not have all the answers to why I suffer in any given circumstance, but I'll tell you what my suffering cannot mean. It cannot mean that I'm unloved by God because he proved that once and for all at the cross. And so I just figure with all of these resources and meaningful answers that the Christian story offers to the problem of evil and suffering, I would much rather suffer with Jesus than suffer without him. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm not a pragmatist in, in my relationship with God. I, I'm a Christian because I think it's true. But even if it wasn't true, even if it was a 50-50 chance, you know, that God exists or he doesn't, I think I'd probably be tempted to lean in and act as though Christianity were true. That's right. Simply because I think it's a much more life-giving way of interpreting the pain and suffering and evil of this world, that it isn't final, it doesn't win, and it can be even co-opted by a good God to serve a meaningful purpose in his plan. Yeah, I agree. Uh, One thing I don't agree on, though, is as a Calvinist, your your focus on the free will defense um, is something that I would have... I would pick nits at. Um, and, and some of the viewers in the chat are noticing that as well. So just out of curiosity, uh, in your chapter on theodicy, theodicy having to yep. do with God and the existence of suffering in the world, do you um, do you offer other explanations besides the free will defense or, or might... Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Talk about that. 
I, I think I think there's a few that are in there, particularly more looking at uh, things that we can come to know. And so in this um, chapter on theodicy, there's one other aspect where I say, okay, if free will is an interesting component, what then do we make of the new creation? Because uh, often a follow-up question if the free will defense is used is people will say, well, doesn't that mean therefore if loving relationships, meaningful relationships and a meaningful role are part of the future world, what's going to stop people from using their freedom to sin all over again? Mm. And so I think some my uh, reformed friends would, would love some of the content that's in there, but particularly honing in on one <laughs> aspect where I think uh, as you, you go through, we've learned more about God having passed through the Christian story than we ever could have if evil never came. Uh, if all we knew yeah. of God was his love in creation and his goodness in setting up the wisdom of the world to lead to our flourishing, uh, we would never have known the depths of his love, his self-giving humility and love as to when God becomes human. He does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but the Son, he makes himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He embraced death and became obedient even to death on a cross. And I think this humility of God, the depths of God's love, even for sinners, his willingness to endure us and to go through it, that we learn more about the beauty and the goodness and the character of God having passed through the story than we ever could have before. I think it's one of the reasons why sin won't be there in heaven. The doubts that Satan once fed into Adam and Eve as morally immature beings, it just, it, we know more now than they did about what God is like. Uh, and so, I, you know, whether you're, uh, again, this is getting pretty in-depth, but uh, you <laughs> can still be a Calvinist and have a version of the free will defense depending on your place with the infra super lapsarian kind of approach um, or uh, I know some Calvinist reformed thinkers who are happy embracing original freedom but not beyond that because of becoming damaged by evil and slaves to sin and so uh, I think there are various ways that reformed friends can still find meaningful stuff in that chapter. Yeah, very good. Uh, two other questions that you ask in this part of your book have to do with science and the Bible which are so often thought to be at odds with one another, not only by unbelievers, but even by some Christians. Um, those questions that I'm referring to in this part of the book are, has science disproved God? And can I trust the Bible? So what are some ways that you tackle these questions for readers in this part of your book? Yeah, I mean, there's a long history, particularly in the last hundred years, with sort of the fundamentalism and secular conversations around God and science that happen predominantly in the, in the U.S. And so uh, that have framed what most people think when it comes to the God and science conversation. And uh, I wanted to, as much as we could in this book, and you, you touched on the suffering one about the free will defense, I recognize that that is not uh, representative of, of everyone. But I'm just trying to give some plausible responses to these questions. And I really did want to try and represent a mere orthodoxy. And so my approach, um, most of the time when it comes to the questions around science is not to say, hey, let's go to the mat on a particular interpretation of Genesis. Uh, so young earth creationism or day age theories or progressive creationism or evolutionary creationism, whatever. Uh, I, I actually leave those questions as a big question mark and allow a huge amount of freedom for different Christians to follow their conscience and to try and faithfully interpret both God's word and God's world. Uh, but what I want to do is say, irrespective of where you land on these questions, there are great reasons to believe in God because of the reality of science. Uh, the concept that science works itself, that we have rational minds, that the universe is intelligible, I think fits very neatly within the Christian story where we're made in the image of an eternal mind, an ordered God who likes to uphold and govern uni the universe according to discoverable laws. And, and I think it's so interesting that not only because God wanted to create a meaningful world, will we partner 
in him uh, with him sorry in in bringing order from chaos and so our work is meaningful and to do that we need to have laws that can be discoverable and therefore ways that we can be able to harness nature's raw potential to be able to do our work I, I think that explains one reason why God would uphold an orderly universe but I think also like the idea that uh, if God wants to communicate with us he needs to do something that's not normal uh, you know the philosopher um uh, Tim McGrew brings this out really well. He says, if God is going to communicate with us, the supernatural into the natural realm, well, then there needs to be a normal backdrop, a backdrop of what you'd expect for which the contrast of your message could be understood. So if God's going to act miraculously to reveal himself at points in history, there needs to be a nature for, that allows us to be able to discern when he's stepping in in a different way. And so I think the Christian story fits very well with the kind of world that we observe. But even scientific discoveries really do point towards the reality of a divine mind, a creator. And so things like the origins of our universe or the fine tuning of our universe or biological systems, uh, you've got all kinds of Christians from different figures, whether evolutionary creationists or your intelligent design camp or your young earth creationists that are all wanting to point out, actually, there are great reasons, scientifically speaking, that this world points towards being the creation of an intelligent creator. And that's stuff that I think even secular people, without having to jump over any additional hurdle of a particular interpretation or negating everything that they've ever been taught within their different classes, to be able to say, hey, let's even just adopt your logic for a second <laughs> what happens what does that point towards you know let's let it run out to its natural end um and and i think there are great reasons scientifically speaking to believe in god which is why you know i highlight that in the last century in the 20th century 85 percent of people who won nobel prizes were believers in god and so the great uh, what's perpetuated is the ultimate story by key uh kind of atheistic voices out there in the scientific world that god and science are at war that is <laughs> it's a myth it's just n not true yeah. uh and so we, we we try and um unfold a bit about that in the chapter on there um in the one on on sort of why i trust the bible this is a complex task. All of these chapters are about 1,200 words, so it's sort of an extended blog post, right? So don't go in there <laughs> thinking you're going to get a great master's thesis with 10,000 references. We've tried to be meaningful in the references that we do give, but uh, but in here, you know, proving the Bible. How, how do you do that? Um, remember, the Bible is not just one book. It is a collection of literature of different genres, different authors, different languages, and different continents at different times in history. And some of it isn't historical in nature. You know, when people are writing poetry, when they're writing songs, when uh, they are reflecting, even with apocalyptic literature, like this is not something that you prove historically, right? And, and so when we're saying, how do we get to the idea of, can you trust the Bible? Well, there are a number of meaningful ways you can come at it. I, I do think the historical passages, those that are intended to be read as history, we do have a good track record of verifying them through archaeology. Even though we have such little access to the ancient world, most of it's been destroyed by the sands of time. When we do seem to unearth the ancient world, it seems to be more confirming the broad storyline of the Bible rather than disconfirming it. And so things that archaeologists thought were fable, like the existence of King David, for instance, in the last 30 years have been proven to be absolutely reliable. And so we can go at it sometimes that way. What I try and do in the, the scope of this chapter, though, is say, I don't think the first step you should try and convince someone is that all of the Bible is true or that all of the Bible is inspired, because inductively speaking, that's very hard to do. I think that's something that people more experience as they read the Bible and hear God speaking through it. I think it's something that the Holy Spirit often does. But what you can do is give them good reasons to trust. I think the most central claim of the Christian story, which is the Gospels around Jesus, because if Jesus was who he claimed to be, uh, you know, God made human, the second person, the Trinity uh, in human flesh. 
And if Jesus gave his thumbs up or his seal of approval on the rest of the Old Testament as being inspired, as being trustworthy, and as being true, then all you really need to do is to establish whether or not the Gospels themselves are reliable eyewitness testimony about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And and so my real focus in that chapter is trying to take a more narrow focus on what are the reasons why we can trust that the Gospels do tell us the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. And as a result, then by extension, I think you've got another reason to trust that the broader thing of the Bible. Uh, now, I do other content on why I believe that the Bible is a book from God, reasons for uh, looking at inspiration as well as more extended, particularly trying to look at the historicity of the Old Testament and being able to show through prophetic fulfillment, all these different reasons. But I, I think, you know, that's more of the more most fruitful approach I've found with people because at the end of the day, I don't necessarily want to convince them 100% of anything. I don't think I have the reasoning capacity to do that. I want to get them to come and read the gospel stories with fresh eyes like I did. And when they do, they encounter this colossal figure of Jesus Christ who tends to captivate and uh, and shine through as being true um, uh, in their own kind of experiences. They do that. Yeah. You, you touched on the question I'm about to ask a little bit already, but um, maybe you can talk about it a little bit more. Okay. Um, I'm one of those, you might say I'm a borderline fundamentalist in that I believe, among other things, in the inerrancy of Scripture, um, which, as I'm sure you're aware, is rejected by many Christians, even conservative ones, um, and of course can also be a stumbling block to uh, that, that prevents many um, unbelievers from accepting Christianity. So do, do the answers that you offer to the question about the reliability of Scripture both in your book and in your ministry, do they require skeptics to accept wholesale that the Bible contains no errors whatsoever, or, or do you allow for more flexibility in that area? Yeah, I, I think my approach is much more, uh, I'm not setting bars really high on what you have to jump over before you can take Jesus seriously. Mm -hmm. you know, I think uh, if you can see the Gospels as a historical record and you've got good reason to trust given multiple independent attestation and all the rest of the meaningful criteria that we use for historicity, if you can trust that what they say about Jesus is real and then for deal with who he says that he is, I think that's all I'm trying to do as the first instance. Then, once you're on the inside, these are inter-family conversations, right? Uh, I think there's stuff that's better addressed around the Christian table than in the public sphere. Uh, and uh, for, for my, myself, uh, I don't often nail my colors to the wall on a lot of these things because I'm more front-facing in wanting to help people who are far from God or are still questioning or have these barriers be able to say, what do I actually need to grapple with before I get there? Now, I am someone who believes that the Bible is inspired by God. Uh, I'm not sure what... Uh, how useful the term inerrancy is as a watchword anymore, given how flexible it seems to be in so many circles. So you often need to sit down and say, well, you know, what do you mean by inerrancy for people? And they'll say, well, you know, the Bible is true in all that it intends to affirm in every, every, um, in the original autographs or something like that. But, you know, I, I wouldn't make these prerequisites for people that aren't yet Christians coming to, to, to look at this. I think the two prerequisites to believe is the existence of God and that Jesus is Lord and has made himself known in history. And so I think uh, you, you can arrive there without with having dubious beliefs about the bible so let me put it another way i think there will be inerrantists who are in heaven <laughs> i can put it that way well i think there will be errantists in heaven so um yeah we'll, we'll, it goes both ways oh sorry i that's actually what i meant to say. Oh. No, I, i've uh now that i've heard it myself what you've just said I've, I've heard myself wrong yeah so uh yeah i don't think you have to believe uh, a whole range of christian doctrines which may be true and good for you to believe and helpful in your christian journey to be able to uh, satisfy God's requirements for trusting in Christ. Yeah, very good. Well, those are the questions that I had prepared about your book, and I want to start wrapping up in a oh. moment. But while we were talking, I did invite um, viewers to ask uh, questions in the chat. And I did get one, if while I'm asking you this and, and you 
answer it. If I get one more, I'll pose it to you as well. But William in the chat says this, I found that pastors often don't address the practical side of the faith as much as they ought to or as much as they could. And he wonders if you have anything more to say about that, like what it means to actually practice loving your neighbor as yourself and actually spending time to practice loving God, those kinds of things. Do you have anything to say to those topics? Yeah, it's a really good question. So thanks for asking that, William. And certainly, uh, I mean, you can't read through the Gospels without recognizing that Jesus is not about beliefs as much as he is putting those beliefs into action. You know, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Uh, and so I think the the practical side of it's incredibly important. We tried to address this as much as we could in part two. And that's really you know, at the end of every one of those five sections, you get this big dialogue box that, um, that kind of addresses those, uh, all right, well, what does this look like? How do I start doing this? Can you give me some pointers and some further resources to do that? So that's kind of where we, we tried to pick up on that a little bit. But I certainly hear the concern. I think the application side of uh, what we're doing in churches should be longer. And uh, the theology side sometimes uh, needs to be cut down a little bit just to let people wrestle with that. Uh, I love even in Jesus sort of approach with this in the synagogue, you know, stand up, read out a passage, Today is this fulfilled in your hearing, and then it was customary for the others to stand and weigh what was said. You see in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, let one prophet speak, and then the others then weigh what is said. What does this mean for us? How do we live this out now? We're in Ephesians, the first three chapters on doctrine, and the next three in uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Okay, what does it mean then to live a life worthy of the gospel that we've received? So uh, appreciate that critique. and. I wear it. It's it's funny that you say um, churches might need to be a bit longer in the application and shorter than they are in the theology, because um, I wonder if that's something of a geographical thing. Uh, because where I'm at in the Pacific Northwest of the United States near Seattle, I find it's way overbalanced on the application side with very little meaty theology and biblical type stuff uh, in the message. Um, I think there's probably a balance to be found there. and, and, and uh, uh, you know, in some places it may be imbalanced in the direction of theology, but I really do think there are a lot of places where it's imbalanced in the direction of application. I mean, very. It seems to me. I'm curious what you make of this. I think that the the sounder one's theology is, the more the the more one's life will be conformed to one's understand. You know, correct understanding of scripture, just naturally without even necessarily thinking about it. That's not to say that there isn't a need for explicitly talking about application, but it is to say that it, it, it's it's probably a mistake to think that theology is just about obtaining knowledge. I think it can actually naturally overflow out of out into one's actions even even unconsciously. Do you think there's there's room for that? And do you think that maybe there's maybe the balance also needs to be have a, a healthy amount of theology too and not primarily application totally yeah it's again neither either or you know think of 1 timothy 4 16 guard your life and doctrine carefully persevere in both for by doing so you save both yourself and your hearers and so i think uh we should never tear asunder the things that god has joined together but uh and it always is going to be tradition based you know i speak in about a range of different churches some of the heavy on application sermon series about relationships primarily and then others that are we're going to teach through doctrine, books of the Bible, verse by verse. Uh, and I do think it's probably very much an individual temperament, location, 
style denomination. But uh, but I, I tend to think there is something um, at, with what Philip is getting at in his question, which is uh, I don't I think it's very possible to have good beliefs and good doctrine and not have that reflected at all in your life. And there's some disconnect that can happen there. So you I would want to say a sound person is one whose theology is expressed in what they do, because Jesus would even say of the Pharisees, do what they say, but don't do what they do you know um and so i yeah where that divorce comes it's usually i think more in the habits of what what we what we live out Uh, jesus would often retreat to lonely times to pray to think on god's words to love those around him to get up and wash their feet and that these are things that shape you more than you realize and yes i think they open the door to better understanding theology too so i think it's a symbiotic relationship in that way well said i agree um another question or or at least sort of thoughts that you might be interested and responding to come from uh, somebody in the chat named Buffalo Bev. Uh, Buffalo Bev asks about um, apologetic methodology. Um, this person, and I'm sorry, Buffalo Bev, I can't tell if you're if Bev is short for like Beverly and if you're a woman or if maybe you're a man, but he or she, whichever it is, um, asked if I'm still a presuppositionalist, which is a bit of a, um, a, a, um, a mistake because I don't think I've ever quite identified as a presuppositional apologist, although I am attracted to presuppositionalism. Um, but I'm also very attracted to classical uh, apologetics and uh, evidential apologetics and so forth. So do, do you have any thoughts on what methodologies best work? Or, or maybe um, maybe you're inclined to think kind of like I do that the best approach is the one that's going to work at in the particular context it's needed. Um, J. Warner Wallace mm-hmm. uh, has, has popularized this concept of mixed martial apologetics playing on the, the phenomenon of of mixed martial arts MMA yeah and I found that analogy really helpful in in that maybe the right thing to do isn't to identify particularly with one approach over another but instead to be willing to deploy whatever's going to work best with a particular person that you're engaging at any point in time so, so uh, that's a lot that are that I just said but what are your thoughts on methodology as a whole yeah, uh, I resonate a lot with that. Uh, so the idea of figuring out horses for courses, of making sure you're addressing the person and not an argument or an approach, um, because people are just more complex. And a lot of people, I find, don't tend to jive or understand uh, a presuppositionalist approach, but then there are intellectuals and often other people from monotheistic religions that do. And so if I'm talking with a Jewish person or someone who's from an Islamic background, I take more of that approach mm. uh, of, of leaning in in that way than I, I would with someone who is apathetic for instance because it's just not really what they're they're kind of interested in and as I shared before my approach is much more I think uh, I think the Christian story best explains who we are why we're here and the deepest longings of the human heart and so as a theological apologist uh, my, my approach is much more to kind of hone in on the resources of the Christian story and how that draws people in response to their questions uh, at the end of the day I think the Holy Spirit does the heavy lifting and so if I can get the person opening up the scriptures to have a look for themselves I'm I feel like that's a big win on my part. So as much as I can be drawing them towards God's word to be able to engage with it, uh, yeah, I kind of see that as my job. Yeah. Um, I'll ask you one last question from the audience, and then we'll start wrapping up. Um, and this comes from Susan, who is my super helpful moderator. She's here every every uh, show to moderate the comments. Um, and she says, and, and she says, what do you think of the literary devices idea that the gospel writers felt free to uh, change the orders of events and the details, put words in Jesus' mouth for theological reasons, things like that, and, and that those 
those are indeed the kinds of things the audience would expect because um, it, it over the past few years there's been a real kind of um, charged heated debate between people like Mike Lycona on one side um, who is arguing that yes the, the gospel writers in particular but also the writers of other books in the New Testament are using these kinds of literary devices that audience uh, that the readers would have recognized for what they are and and weren't expecting uh, you know a, a very rigid um, sequential account of events or anything like that um, and 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 then on the other side of that charged debate that's raging nowadays you have people like the McGrews especially Lydia McGrew who is saying no that's taking the concept of literary devices too far um, without she does want to say there are literary devices in the New Testament but not to the extent that somebody like Mike Lacuna does so where what thoughts do you have on that debate that's raging right now um, to what extent do you think that biblical author you yeah. authors use these kind yeah. of devices yeah yeah well i'm uh, i'm often a very conciliatory figure <laughs> so to be honest i i appreciate a lot of michael's heart in what he's trying to do in his scholarship and what he has done in the resurrection i really appreciate lydia you know she's a errantist who yet is wanting to help uphold here the integrity of the historicity of all four gospels yeah. and that we shouldn't just be willing to cede the ground that much of it is uh either either fabricated or literary devices or just stuff that isn't historically reliable and therefore what do we make about the historical claims of those gospels so uh, i think there's a lot still to be learned and i don't think we should draw conclusions too quickly uh, one of the most helpful pieces of advice that i was given when i was studying in england we had a professor at, uh, at oxford called benno van den Torren. he was the sort of Danish theologian, and uh, and he said, whenever you come across a point of controversy where people who love God and love Jesus and love the Bible, where they disagree, you should really resist the temptation to choose sides quickly. <laughs> because there is often a desire that we marry ourselves to our heroes. We want to be thought well of by the people that we look up to or want to be seen as in a particular camp. And he said, that's actually unhelpful to your Christian maturity and to your growth. So he said, you should take a period of time, he suggested seven years, maybe because it's a perfect kind of period of time uh get a get a rest as one of those last years just to be able to wrestle with the for and against on both sides and to be completely honest i've read a couple of their books on this so i've read the work on biographies that michael cone has done i haven't read lydia's latest book which she's just put out i've read the mirror and the mask and i've read the one on hidden um uh hidden in plain view but the the this last one that she's just put out i haven't picked it up yet and so i'm i'm still learning uh, i've watched a couple of their debates online i'm still learning and so i'm hitting the pause button on drawing conclusions but uh, but I probably you know if you're looking at where do I sit comfortably I'd, I'd I'm nervous to see the ground similar I have similar reservations as what Lydia does uh, but they're reactionary impulses rather than informed arguments at this point. I think I very much uh, resonate with what you just described as your own particular position at this point. I think I'm in a similar boat. Um, Okay, let's start wrapping up. We've, we've talked about your book. We've fielded some audience questions. We've gotten to know you a bit. Um, as we start to wrap things up, what I like to do with my guests very often is ask them for uh, a parting message of sorts, something that listeners can hopefully be thinking about and remembering after the recording's over, even if they forget everything else that we talked about in the <laughs> show. Um, now, I want to do things a little bit different and ask you to offer two parting messages because I think that they are two possibly overlooked 
overlapping but nevertheless distinct messages to the two primary readers sure. of your book, I think. The first of those two groups of readers I would uh, could be considered Christians, um, the Christians who might be doubting or questioning or wondering and not sure, or maybe they've got you know unbelieving friends they want to witness to or whatever. What what sort of parting message would you offer to Christian uh, Christians who um, either have doubts or know people who do? Talk to that. Mm. Yeah, uh, I think like the biggest thing that I want to instill is that God is not afraid of your questions. Mm -hmm. And that's not in an arrogant or a rude way. It's that so much of the Bible gives voice to deeper doubts and reasons for deconstruction that often you'll hear on the mouths of modern deconversion stories. It's in the Bible. They're having these raw emotional responses to the pain, the confusion, the disillusionment, the disappointment of God in their own life. And it begins to address these kinds of questions from the inside out. And I do think if rather than just running away or deconstructing and then leaving nothing in its place that you can rebuild a good resolute trust in the goodness of God and the goodness of the gospel based on the life of Jesus and so wherever you are I'd say truth invites questioning go digging to see whether or not there are meaningful answers to the questions that you're asking because what you may be discovering is that the Christians have long thought through these things and tried to speak to them from the Christian story and so if we can be helpful in in helping you find some of these resources or work through some of these questions or just hear some of your story please do get in contact well so now let's turn to the other group of readers that I have in mind which are non-christian readers people that have as of yet not embraced the Christian faith or maybe they left it behind some time ago partly because of some yeah. of the kinds of questions that you address in your book. What, what sort of parting message would you offer non-Christians uh, that are watching right now? Yeah, I mean, the parting message would be that Jesus is worth believing in. Uh, I look at everything that the Christian story actually grants to you. If the Christian story is true, then you're not a cosmic accident. You're the intentional creation of an eternal God who loves you. If the Christian story is true, then your life is not meaningless. It's not without purpose, but that you're designed for specific contrib contributions to make in loving God, loving others, and, and, and bearing up in this world to create, to frame beauty, and to help undo with healing action, the damage of evil. Uh, I think if the Christian story is true, then death is not the final destiny. There can be resurrection life for those who trust in Jesus. And I think if the Christian story is true, then there is just so much good news for understanding your part in this world. And so I would, I would implore you to, to figure out, all right, if the Christian story is, what is that good news for me? And to take some time to parse that out. Because I think we actually steal or live so much as though the Christian story is already true. Uh, I think the way that we live is one of the greatest evidences for the fact that it is true because the what we hold to be dear, what we believe to be real, the things that we most pursue, they're the things that are gifts of God through the Christian story. And so I'd invite you to take a fresh look at Jesus. You really can believe it. There's good reasons for it and it really is worth believing. Amen. In fact, I, I think that there's been no time in recent history that is more, um, you know, that, that more justifies believing in the Christian claims than, than today. Um, so I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that parting message. Uh, if we have succeeded, as I hope we've done, um, succeeded at teasing viewers into wanting to get a, their hands on a copy of your book, Questioning Christianity. Again, here it is. I'll hold it up for viewers. Questioning Christianity. Is there more to the story? If we've successfully teased them into getting their hands on a copy, where would you recommend that they go to do so? 
Great question. Uh, so you can jump on nearly any online retailer from what I understand. Uh, Audible has an audio version of it. You can get a Kindle version through Amazon. You can get hard copies through most bookstores, certainly on Amazon, uh, through Barnes & Noble, through a whole range of booksellers globally. So please, if, you're, if you'd like to get a copy, uh, jump on and would love to hear your feedback. Uh, our goal is just to keep uh, maybe updating this resource over time so that it's the most helpful in making sense of the kind of questions that people are asking. So if you've got meaningful reviews to write or some feedback to give, we'd love to hear it. I, I know it was on audible and that kind of surprised me who who, who does the the reading the, the vocalizing of it yeah so we we were published through moody publishers over in the u.s based sort of with movie bible institute over there and so i'm actually not sure who okay. has done the audio i'm sure it's on there but i did listen to the sample audio and his diction was fantastic i was nervous australian authors being uh narrated by uh an american but he did a fantastic job well hopefully that you didn't have any peculiar aussie you know <laughs> uh uh idioms no and things. You know, Arvo's exactly. Very good. All right. Now, besides your book, where can viewers go online to find you and your work, maybe get in touch with you, those kinds of things? Yeah, well, as we shared, uh, Questioning Christianity is the brand new not-for-profit. We're less than 12 months old, but you can go to questioningchristianity.com, all one word, questioningchristianity.com. We've got a website there with blogs and links to other things. We've got a YouTube channel uh, called Questioning Christianity. You can find it. But probably the best way to get all of the links is we've got a link tree. So if you just type into your browser, linktr.ee, and then backslash questioning Christianity, all one word, that'll take you to a URL that has every link that you will need to all our stuff on Instagram, Facebook, and stuff. So hopefully that'll be a benefit. Very helpful. And with that, your camera turned off. I guess it really wants you to <laughs> to to get to off leave. The, to leave. Yeah. But but you know, thankfully we are at the end. Dan, I really am grateful for your friendship, and and I really enjoyed your book. I'm going to dive more deeply into it and um, share it with friends and stuff. And I really hope that viewers do uh, get their hands on a copy and check out your website. So thank you so much for this time today. I really appreciate the setting it aside for me. It means a lot. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Appreciated it. Well, I hope everybody, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed conducting the interview. Do check out Questioning Christianity's website and get your hands on a copy of the book. And as I said at the beginning of the show, tune in to Capturing Christianity this Thursday, Thursday, July 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Pacific for, or sorry, 1 p.m. Eastern for my debate with Keith Giles on Cameron Batuzzi's Capturing Christianity. And with that, um, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Apologetics, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then... <laughs>